Welcome to the Cory Mueller Podcast, conversations about politics, theology, art and history. A century after the partition of Ireland, and in this first year of Brexit, I'll be talking about Irishness and Britishness with a rich lineup of guests who offer unique insights into contemporary life in Ireland and Britain. On this week's episode, I'll be talking with Dr. Gail McConnell, whose poetry collection, The Sun is Open, comes out this year. This book considers life and death in all its tragedy. My dad was a prison governor in the Mays prison and he was murdered outside our home in Belfast one morning in 1984. And she explains how she uses art as a process of making meaning. It's my way of trying to make sense of this history and of this past and to maybe find kind of deeper meanings in some of the seemingly sort of banal the materials that are here. Hello, my name is Padraig Tuma, and you're listening to the Coromila podcast. With me today is Dr. Gail McConnell, senior lecturer in Irish poetry at the Seamus Heaney Centre at Queen's University, Belfast. She's also a poet herself. And today we're talking about her upcoming book, The Sun is Open. Gail, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. It's a joy. And just as we start, Gail, where are you talking to us from? I'm talking to you from my study, which is in my home in Belfast, in the east of the city. Um, And you may hear my family downstairs baking cookies at some point during this. (laughs) Fantastic. That'd be great. I hope there is some lovely interruptions of family. Um, Gail, I wanted to jump right into talking about this book of yours that's coming out soon, later on in 2021. This book called The Sun is Open comes out in the autumn. Could you tell us broadly about the book before we begin to talk about some specific parts? Yeah, so The Sun is Open, it's kind of a, it's a title I, I like. I'm not entirely sure what it means. Maybe that's a good thing. Um, it's meaning, I suppose, it becomes clear when you when you find that part of the book. But it came about through um, finding a box of materials that I had um, gathered together, um, an archive of sorts, a public and a personal archive of materials relating to my father's death. My dad was a prison governor in the Mays prison um, and he was murdered outside our home in Belfast one morning in 1984. I was three and a half. I was standing at the front door with my mother, um, kind of waving him off to work. He was had been checking underneath his car uh, for bombs in the usual way, and uh, or what I thought of as checking for cats when I was when I was small. And uh, two men who had been um, holding up our elderly neighbours at gunpoint the night before crossed the street, came into the drive and shot him, um, and he died pretty much instantly. And so at a very early age, my life was shaped by an experience of loss, but also of politics, of nation, of colonial histories, of empire, of class, of all kinds of things that I didn't understand at the time, but which um, left a profound imprint on my life. And I suppose trying to understand that event, why it happened, um, the histories that shaped its happening, um, has been in some ways kind of a lifelong project, 
not only of my academic life but you know of my of my personal life too i find that aunts and uncles and grandparents and my mother had gathered together materials relating to his death from various newspapers from parliamentary records from hansard um from all kinds of official documents and sort of box them together um, or perhaps I boxed them together. How this archive came about, I'm not even entirely sure. But I found that I had a, a box of materials relating to his death, some of which were very personal. I had his his diaries from his time at Queen's when he was an undergraduate student in the late 1960s, um, where he studied history and politics. Um, and I had materials relating to his time as a scout and all kinds of things, but, you know, guitar, music books. And I had written a long poem called Typeface back in, it was published in 2016. I had been writing it in the years prior. And Typeface was really an exploration of my experience of reading a historical inquiry team report, which was produced about his murder. And to me, the most striking thing about this report was that it was written in the font Comic Sans, which if you don't know it, is a kind of jazz hands font that's used for um, children's party invitations and church fates. And so to read phrases like laceration of the brain in this font was a very jarring experience. And, and typeface, I suppose, exists in quite an ironic and detached and angry mood to think about the writing up, the reporting of his murder. Um, but The Sun is Open, I think, tries to do something different, which is to think about childhood and to think about yes the event of his murder as being central to my childhood and to my formative experience but as one of many things that was um an event an important event along with friendships schooling going to church learning bible verses um my relationship with my mother our neighborhood 1980s cartoons video games all kinds of other things and yeah. banana man went, wendy houses banana man. <laughs> Exactly. And it was lovely to remember those things that I think I had I thought I had forgotten, Wendy Houses and Banana Man. And so anyway, this book, I, you know, tries to think about and situate the, the murder in the context of all of that, too, and to go yeah. through this archive um, and to try to write out through the archive and to remember and, and to record. I've read The Sun is Open a few times this week. And one of the things that strikes me is that in the midst of all those um kind of childhood memories, some of which are filled with delight. It's not like you're saying, and all these lead to this terrible event. You're just putting them alongside each other. And it's a mm. really curious thing you do to put murder alongside Wendy houses, alongside mm. helicopters in the sky, alongside Bible verses, alongside gospel hall things. You know, they're just there and you're not trying to make it easy or even difficult, I think, for the reader to see them, you're just putting them out there. Mm. Isn't that so much of our experience, though, that, you know, the tragic or the, um, the just extraordinarily painful just enters in through the everyday, the ordinary, the domestic. It's, it's just this mixture. You know, I think there's a story that on the day that he was killed, I took my aunt by the hand and led her into the back garden and said you know I think my daddy is here he ran you know he, he's disappeared he's run down here let's look for him and there was a sense in which you know it was just another day and he had disappeared from view and he must be in the back garden somewhere um I think you know uh, yeah so often I think the truth of it is that 
these things are always mixed and muddled in together. Um, and so yeah. it felt important to to write a book that was true to all of that, where, where typeface had been very focused on just this one event. I wanted to be a bit more expansive here. I, I was struck by uh, one moment in the in the book where there's this kind of casual comment given to your dad. He, I don't know, maybe it was in a diary or something, mentions that he goes to the Strand Cinema, uh, mm. that beautiful kind of Art Deco cinema in East Belfast. And you've got this line where you say, I go there too. And I feel like I'm eavesdropping in a conversation with the him that's not dead and the you that's kind of talking to him with a level of curiosity. He's alive mm. for a small moment. Mm. I think that was one of the really engaging things to me about trying to work with an archive, because in a sense, an archive can be a distraction from having to address the subject. And there's a moment in the book where I say, you know, copy all this out and I won't have to address you. And then I swear because I realise that in saying I won't have to address you, I have in fact addressed my father. And it's this kind of strange dilemma of wanting to speak to the dead, but only having contact with the dead through the, these textual materials. And yet, as you say, kind of starting a conversation with the dead through my responses to these materials and therefore forming a, a weird kind of intimacy with my father through um you know a long time after the fact of his his death but but through these seemingly impersonal and sometimes more personal in the case of the diary but seemingly impersonal records is it, it's these things that that kind of bring about a conversation and enable me to address him but in ways that i am noticing are distant and kind of always at one remove and always self-conscious in a way too, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, one of the features throughout the whole of the book are these um, extracts from a first aid manual, which kind of sometimes I wonder, who, you know, who are you keeping alive? Who are you saving? I wonder if you could read the um, the piece right at the beginning, beginning with begin with victim. Hmm. So, yeah, I found in my when I was going through my father's diaries, I found this in some ways, even more striking to me than the things that he had written himself in the sort of every day of what he was doing was, yeah, the first aid instruction manual. And it just seemed to resonate in ways that um, beyond its own intention. So, yeah, this is how The Sun is Open begins. Begin with victim on his back is how this could begin. Place your mouth over his mouth, pinch his nostrils shut. Easier to take what I have found and break it up. Breathe steadily till victim's chest begins to rise. Pause every minute to glue it back the wrong way. Take a deep breath yourself. If there is no air exchange, do not touch him. I suppose in that I'm trying to think about documentary and about taking what I have found, these archival materials and what I do with them, the sort of responsibility of, of what I do with them. And, um, you know, I, I, there's a the line of glue it back the wrong way. There's a sense in which I'm collaging them together in a way that isn't quite right and isn't the way they began, but it's my way of trying to make sense of this history and of this past and to maybe find kind of deeper meanings in some of the seemingly sort of banal um, mm. instructions and materials that are here. And that line in it too, right after glue it back the wrong way, take a deep breath yourself. 
it sounds like you're instructing yourself also in the process of opening up this box and sharing these archival materials and gluing them together in a way that glues your life and like a pastiche or a scrapbook together of these terrible things and these ordinary things. It feels like you're telling yourself, stay alive while you do this. Mm, yeah, I think I heard it. I knew they're just reading it to you. It's again, one of those lines I haven't noticed so much, but yeah, you're absolutely right. I like that reading of it. Um, maybe for the reader too, because <laughs> I think, you know, it's this is a this is not in some ways it's not an easy book or it's not a conventional book in terms of its organization. You know, it's organized as these little columns of text on the page. It looks like something cut out of newspaper columns or, you know, the, the Old Testament. They're kind of narrow blocks on the page. They're unpunctuated. They don't have titles. And so there's a sense in which the reader has to take a take a breath and come with you into this archive and into this um, experience of it and to allow themselves to be, I suppose, kind of immersed and taken through this book. And hopefully they will. <laughs> Not everybody yeah. will, but, um, but hopefully they will. I mean, the way you talk about this box in the book, you call it the dad box and sometimes mm -hmm. talk about having that title turned toward the wall or having the box of archival material next to your desk as you write. Um, it, the way you're, you're even talking about it now kind of makes the origin of this dad box <laughs> seem shrouded in some kind of secret. You know, where <laughs> did it come from? Who put the things in there? For whom? Um, it seems like it has mystery to it. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it is. It's a, one of those crap cardboard boxes from Ikea is the truth of it you know <laughs> it kind of makes it funnier but you know in the book as well I also try to think about um yeah the putting together of that box and I suppose these little um blocks of text on the page are another way in which I try to um yeah recreate the box so there's a bit I'll read a little bit from it here it says you assemble it yourself it came flat pack a square with folded sides you put them all in place and twist in shallow screws. You punch the pins through holes, fold back the legs, put in what you have, mostly piles of cutouts from the papers, eight inches thick, church bulletins, school magazines, Hansard, Bibles, a student's union diary from his time at Queen's, reports, things he wrote. Hey presto, got a dad box. Wrote that on the side, not sure why. When we have guests, I turn it to the wall. When I want to see inside, I make piles on the spare room bed and on the floor, then forget what it was I was looking for. I mean, that really is a description of process and as much as it's yeah. contained within this box, but to actually read anything in it, you know, you have to make this huge mess and sort of take over a whole room. And I would just find myself invariably overwhelmed and just not remembering why on earth I had opened the box in the first place and feeling bad that I was taking over parts of the house um, yeah. to do this, but then always having this instinct to sort of pack it away, fold it away at the end of the day and to put it somewhere Um and I'm conscious now as I'm speaking to you of its proximity inside a wardrobe, just sort of two metres from me here. Wow. Huh. Even the hey presto there, I think one of the things that you do in lots of your poetry in this collection, in lots of your other collections that you put out, there is often the mixture between very serious material and then everyday references like hey presto or often enough you'll mention Googling or WordPress or Ikea. You know, there's a way within which these, you know, it's it's extraordinary literary poetry. And then suddenly these things that sound like, you know, 
you're listening to the television, it just wafts in, or you're listening to people talking about setting up a new website. Mm-hmm. And hey, presto is the same. You know, there's a there's a sense almost of the the casual interacting with the deeply uncasual in the sense of um, the solemnity of opening up this dad box. Mm. I know, I think it's, I, I love and admire those poets who can get into their poems, really that texture of just everyday life and speech. You know, John Ashbury used to speak about um, writing poems while being on the telephone and, you know, having the TV on the background, watching cartoons. And his poetry is extraordinary, I think, for the elasticity and the ways in which he's able to pack in so much of the world. Um, at the same time, I think it's really important in that to, for there always to be humour. You know, I think like typeface has that kind of bleak humour. Um, but I do think, you know, some of the writers I admire most um, have are able to write about very dark subject matter, but always with a sense of comedy. You know, in the Irish tradition, I think about Becca, I think about Flann O'Brien, um, Joyce, too. People who are able to attend to the humour of the everyday sometimes it's a gallows humour but I do think you know I'm always suspicious of books that don't have any kind of humour about them whatever the subject matter because I do think and it's it's maybe especially true on this island that we have a sense of approaching things wryly and with a kind of comedy and um, really no matter how how dark things get um, and I, I, yeah. I want to be self-conscious, I suppose, about the undertaking of this too. And that, um, you know, it's uh, just to weigh it very carefully um, and to weigh the, the cost and consequence of it. So I think, hey, Presto, yeah, is <laughs> I'm glad you like that. It's important. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, and I, I did also find myself um, putting Banana Man into YouTube afterwards because oh. it has been over 30 years since I'd seen Banana Man. But it's still you know, it's good, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's still slightly ridiculous. <laughs> listeners, there is a treasure trove of Banana Man, Banana Man uh, material on YouTube. Yeah, it's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, earlier on, you mentioned uh, putting something side by side. You know, you talked about around noon on page 30. I wonder if you could read, read page 30 and page 31. Like you, you do this turn from one page to another of something phenomenally innocent and then something overwhelmingly brutal. Yeah, so something to say maybe about the arrangement of these poems is that some of the text appears in a different colour um, in the version I'm looking at at the minute. It's grey from the rest. And the grey material is... Um, the found material, so things that I, I I got from newspapers in this case. So yeah, there there are two pages, um, it's kind of side by side. Where the first one is, um, they both begin around noon, and the first one is my version of events. I suppose the second is just a verbatim account that was in a newspaper. So I'll read them together here. Around noon. The girl took her auntie by the hand to the rows of rose bushes where her father wasn't. Around noon, the men sent out for fish and chips and as they sat eating, they watched the lunchtime news to find out if they had killed their target. Even fish and chips there and lunchtime news they seem to be so everyday, so ordinary, maybe a bunch of workers. And then suddenly we find out that this is the the gathering of people who have arranged to murder your father and they're wanting to check the news. 
to see if they had done what they had set out to do, if they had murdered the person that they'd wished to murder. What's it like for you putting those things side by side? Because I need to tell you, when I read those, I was filled with a rage. And then I found myself thinking, like, I'm reading this at such a distance that there's both vulnerability as well as phenomenal strength, I think, and maybe accusation in putting those things side by side. Hmm. Yeah, I I remember sitting for a long time with that section of the paper and really wondering what to make of it, what to do with it. In some ways, this was much harder material to absorb than, you know, the, the details in the historical inquiry report about the laceration of the brain or the kind of physical wounds or or other circumstances of the murder itself. That sense of being able to eat lunch and watch the news, but also this the curious, um, the curious not knowing the 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 anticipation of um, a kind of success because you know the goal was was the murder. So to think then of my father's killers as being in this strange position of of anticipation and waiting, and there being a vulnerability in that. In fact, um, if you think about it in you know the terms of kind of what they set out to do. I mean, it's so much of this is 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 difficult to imagine, and yet I think one of the things my mother has always been at pains to do is to encourage me to imagine other lives. And I think you know she had very strong Christian faith, and you know for her, grace and forgiveness were her way through this and it was grace and forgiveness is what allowed this event to be survivable and one of the things I think that those theological ideas can do is to encourage you to imagine the lives of other people including the lives of those who some might call your enemies um I don't but and I I do think it's maybe hard to describe but from an early age I was encouraged to think and imagine about this event from as it were the other side from the perspective of those who who had chosen to do it and and so in that sense I think this is a moment in the book where I can we don't see you know these we don't see these people as you know kind of gun wielding but we, we see them doing something ordinary and that's important too albeit a kind of there's a kind of something slightly stomach churning about the idea of eating lunch while waiting to see this news but at the same time it is an ordinary moment um and that feels important too so it's a really complicated um story and it's a really complicated yeah. retelling of that story and i hope necessarily so and that's why i think the kind of side by side placement does some of the work of telling it but but also leaves the reader to kind of to make of it what they will um i hope i hope there's enough space for the reader to, to draw some of their own conclusions about it Parimila is Ireland's oldest peace and reconciliation organisation, engaging with thousands of people every year. We work with all kinds of groups to have inclusive conversations about politics, religion, welcome and change. We do this because we believe together is better. You can find Carimila on social media 
or read more at corymela.org. We've provided some questions to support groups who wish to use this episode to start their own conversation. Find those in our show notes. You're listening to the Corrymeela podcast and I'm Padraig Tuma. With me today is the poet Dr. Gail McConnell talking about her forthcoming book, The Sun is Open. Gail, there are so many ways within which you you put certain events under the spotlight and you've just spoken about one of those, you know, looking at the the ordinariness and, you know, what you even call the vulnerability of people wanting to eat, you know, while they wait for to know if they've murdered the person that they had set out to murder. You you put that under the spotlight. You also um, put your father under the spotlight. You know, it's a, this book is a serious relationship with him in the sense of that there's things discovered in common. There's things of curiosity about him. But then, like on page 69, I wonder if you could read that. You you examine what you might think of as a conversation between you and him um, regarding the prison system and his, his work within the prison system. Mm. Yeah, I'll read that. For so long, it was hard to mourn thinking from that side of things. Bad bastard, screw in the mechanism, the panopticon, the architecture of brutality, knowing the theory, the cruel, ingenious cage, thinking, shit, that's him on the wrong side of the gaze. You know, I'm thinking there about kind of Bentham's panopticon and Foucault and architectures of surveillance and all that we understand now about how the mechanism of prison architecture works to induce in those who are imprisoned a sense of constant surveillance. You know, the idea being that if you think you're being watched all the time, you'll begin to modify your behaviour and act in a particular way. And so the, the kind of the very architecture of the prison grows oppressive whether or not you know you're actually being watched or not and there are other parts you know where I think about sort of the people and and and, and the way that just the act of looking can itself assert a kind of power dynamic over these bodies of republican prisoners who wanted to have their status as political prisoners recognized but had it denied by the Thatcher government you know those were things that my father was irritated about um I know that he felt caught uh up in a system that was uh, unjust and a, and a, and a kind of in, in the context of a British, you know, Tory government, which didn't want to understand how the legacy of a colonial history was being played out in the troubled violence and within the prisons themselves. And at the same time, from the perspective of the prisoners, you know, he's just a screw. He, he's that that is. I mean, he is a representative of the other side and in this context there was only really allowed to be kind of two sides and so from that point of view he's on the wrong side of the gaze he's on the side of power and of um the state and so on um and you know that those are difficult dynamics um for me to have to deal with you know the sense yeah. of mourning or, or not mourning was also caught up in a sense of anxiety shame um concern about you know well what what was his position in all of this? And, you know, he was, at least to some degree, from some perspectives, a representative of a power structure that was deemed to be oppressive and was oppressive. So 
no matter how conflicted he felt, he was also seen in that way. Um, yeah. So it's, it is, again, it's really complicated. Um, and I try to approach him, you know, in, with all of those complications around and also in the knowledge that I cannot speak to him, that we can't have these conversations. But he was someone who read Irish history, who read Irish politics. You know, I've inherited his book. So he knew he knew exactly what his position was. And I think his decision at, towards the end of his life, just before his murder, in fact, to speak out and to critique um, the way in which matters of the, of the prison were being handled and the, the you know, in the unenviable position of the Northern Ireland office was as a consequence of knowing about these complexities, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, there's all these um, kind of social rules about the dead, you know, don't speak ill of the dead, etc. And you're not speaking ill of him, but you are speaking well to him in the sense of that you're having a serious conversation and you're <laughs> you're questioning what loyalty to somebody looks like. Um, it's not like you're mm. being disloyal. You're being profoundly loyal by saying, I want to have that conversation, even mm. with somebody who isn't replying. I found myself thinking that some of these poems where you look at his role, you look at the split place that he found himself in. I found those to be deeply loving because I thought mm. only somebody who loves somebody would ask somebody else those questions in the way you do. Well, that is lovely to hear, and I feel, I feel very moved by your reading. I think you know, the problem with this kind of binary, you know, two sides perspective is that either my father is the oppressor or he's a victim, and you know, for some he's a kind of martyr then to, to a cause, and I I have no time for that kind of logic either. Um, I don't find that helpful. And so, yeah, I really hope that there is a loving conversation that is robust and real um, with him. You know, I kind of wish I could have that conversation with him in person. But um, I do try to take seriously the decisions that he made in his life and to try to understand what it must have been like. And similarly, what it must have been like for my mother, who's I didn't want peripheral in this either you know she's the one who's raising me and yeah. loving me and explaining to me you know kind of what has happened and, and sort of where we are now um and yeah inevitably perhaps I suppose so much of my attention is is focused on his absence um perhaps more so than her presence sometimes um but I'm I'm really heartened by that reading of of my relationship with him in this um yeah, thank you for that. While we're talking about this, I can hear I can hear your son jabbering away in the background. What happening? Yeah, <laughs> I I'm aware that in a number of your poems, you know, you were that time is a powerful feature. You know, you were writing some of these poems as you were around the same age that your father was when he was murdered. And at the same time, when you and your wife were about to become parents mm -hmm. and you, you bring all of this out in some of your other poetries, there's something extraordinary about family looking back, looking forward and being in this literally pregnant moment. The way that time seems to contract and expand in your work also seemed to mirror the way that time was contracting and expanding in your own life at that particular time of your life. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's a lovely thing to sort of discover writing poetry, or maybe I should say rediscover writing poetry. And in some ways, a later stage of my life, you know, it's really only been since my mid 30s that I've started to write seriously. And perhaps that isn't a coincidence. You know, I was writing typeface, realizing that I was just about to turn the age my father was when he died. And, and I do think those things change your understanding of the past but also of the present and of the future that you want you know for me it was a future that involved writing more poems instead of writing about other people's poetry um and then yeah now with our son finn he's two and a half and i think you know living in that time in infant time and in toddler time (laughs) is another time zone again and that has much to teach me i wonder if you'd be happy to read I, i always pronounce it wrong father mother (laughs) <laughs> Father Mother, yeah. Father Mother. <laughs> um, let me just find it here. Do you mean the Villanelle? Yes, I do mean the Villanelle, yeah. You might want to explain yeah, we... what a Villanelle is. So So this is a poem called Untitled Villanelle um, from a pamphlet called Father Mother. And um, it's, uh, well, I'll just read it and then you can see what you think of it. <laughs> so there, it starts with uh, two epigraphs, which I'll read first, and the epigraphs then become the basis for the repeating lines in the poem. The villanelle is a form with um, a lot of repetition. <laughs> so I'll, I'll read the epigraphs and then I'll read it. I have often longed to see my mother in the doorway, Grace Paley, because having a father made me want a father, Sandra Newman. Untitled villanelle. I have often longed to see my mother tap dance in a top hat like she did before he died. Having had a father made me want a father. A mother madder mether is a measure that keeps its shape and holds what's stored inside. I often see my mother. Mistype the word it stretches to a father A cartload carries fodder hitched outside. A father made me. You come to know the one against the other. You measure till the meanings coincide. I have often longed to see my father. My mother's mother died before her daughter was a mother. Alone, she gave me all she could provide. Not having a father made me want to be a father. What am I to you? Mother? Father? Neither? Like cells named split and double, unified. I have often longed to mother. Mother, father, father, mother, mother, father, father, mother. Um, that line, what am I to you, is such a beautiful turning of this poem to this person who you didn't know yet? I think, you know, for a long time, I was really worried about that question. What am I to you? You know, my partner carried our son and I didn't have a biological attachment to him. And before he was born, I was worried about who I would be to him and what I would be called. And it was an anxiety. It was a nervousness about how we would form a relationship and there has been so much formation and I he- Finn has been teaching me so much about formation, about how attachments are made and they are made within and beyond biological ones and they're made 
primarily in our case through touch and through language, through nonsense, through babble, <laughs> through play. And so now, you know, the question isn't a nervous and anxious one so much, but it's one in which I can take the language that I've been given and I can make my own nonsense from it. I can muck it up, mess it about and make my own term for the kind of parent that I am, which is father mother. To Finn, I'm just mama. Uh, <laughs> that's yeah. the name that he has settled on for me. So in some ways, it's also just simple and not that, you know, it's not complicated. I make it complicated because I worry and get nervous and overanalyze. But for Finn, I'm, I'm his mama. You have some other poems that kind of concern themselves with creatures, creaturely poems. I've heard you refer to them as um, narwhals and seahorses and worms. One time I heard you give a reading and you said that you were interested in those creatures because they, like you, have had to learn how to find life in strange places. And <laughs> so there's a there's a weight to those poems, as well as there being a kind of a delight in the eccentricity. I, weren't you saying that one of those animals you were writing about, a deep sea creature, dangles its genitals in front of it as it seeks a mate? <laughs> Not something I do, I guess, today. <laughs> The cuttlefish is interesting. It, 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 yeah, I remember seeing this on, I think it was one of those David Attenborough Planet Earth programs. But the male cuttlefish, when he wants to mate with the female, now what's the story? He has an, um, he has eight, oh, I have to get it now. Where's the poem? I've returned to it. You've, I've caught me off guard in my own poem. Hang on, where's the cuttlefish? Turn over to it. Oh, yeah, I didn't expect to hear gemstones before noon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I know what it is. The male cuttlefish has eight limbs and the female has six. That's what it is. So when the male cuttlefish wants to mate with the female, he actually tucks two of his limbs away to camouflage himself as female and then sort of moseys on over and sidles up to her. And then after he has, you know, um, yeah, formed this sort of intimacy. He's there's sort of a ta-da moment. <laughs> anyway, I was interested in terms of the forms of kind of camouflage and dragging and sameness and so on and go on. But I think, yeah, animals, I mean, there are so many creatures who have adapted strategies of survival um, that, you know, the octopus, the worm, that are genius, really. You know, the octopus... Uh, when it, if it becomes entangled with an enemy, it simply cuts off, it's able to cut off one of its eight arms and swim away and then to grow a new one to, to, to self-repair, which just struck me as being a, a very um, wise <laughs> and intelligent way of dealing with, um, well, maybe not dealing with conflict, but certainly dealing with a situation of entanglement um, yeah. and repair. You know, the worm... Um, you know, eats refuse for a living, eats waste for a living, but is able to kind of make the earth fertile. Um, you know, is kind of responsible for the fertility of all the kind of flowers and plants and everything we see around us, just through eating um, and, uh, well, and shitting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, you know, I didn't realise, I don't know, I think creatures have taught me a lot about... Um, different ways of living in the world, different possibilities. Yeah. Is poetry partly that for you, partly a way of surviving entanglement or finding a way where something's taken away to find something else to grow? Mm. Yes, I think poetry can be so many things. But certainly I think it allows me to step 
back from some of the entanglements of my own life, you know, familial, historical, psychological, to look at them with renewed attention and to reflect on them. And also to encounter myself in you, you know, to, to, to try to find some clarity on what is going on around about me or to notice myself in the moment of not finding clarity on that and sort of where that leaves me. So it's, um, and it allows me certainly to relate to the dead. I won't say remember or talk to or elegize because it's none of those things simply put, It's but it's relationship. It allows me to relate to the dead. Yes, my father and, and others too. Um, and for that, it's been very valuable um, to me. You know, I think we sometimes struggle to, to speak in everyday life about our relationship to the dead. And yet we as a state and as individuals are constantly negotiating our relationship with the dead through commemoration, through memorials, through, um, you know, centenary years, all those kinds of things. We're constantly thinking about the generations who've come before us and about individuals who've come before us and, and where we are in relation to them. And yet I think we sometimes struggle to do that in a way that's a fully kind of fleshed out vocabulary and grammar for it. So for me, poetry is a, an opportunity to try to think in more detail about my relationship with the dead. Just as we finish, I'm thinking about how um, The Sun is Open is going to be coming out in 2021, which, as you were mentioning, is a centenary year, you know, centenary year of partition, something that's so intimate and individual. Um, and you're not prescribing here is a here is a strategic plan for anybody, not even for yourself. <laughs> you're, you're putting things alongside each other that are in this mysterious mm. dad box. How mm. do you feel about this book coming out in, in this um in this weighty year? Mm. It feels important. I mean, in a sense, it was happenstance, but maybe unconsciously it wasn't. In the same way that I remember, it felt important for me that um, Typeface appeared in 2016 in the middle of this kind of decade of centenaries and at a moment where we thought about, you know, so many anniversaries from the Battle of the Somme to the Easter Rising, Partition, you know, it's... Um, I think there are many conversations to be had about the legacy of partition on this island. And um, there are many sad, very sad consequences from it. And, and, and that's complicated. And I hope that this book um, shows, I suppose, that, you know, in some ways that the wounds endure in all kinds of ways. And also that, you know, we have we have a way of, of looking at the past and of, and of relating to the dead and of, um, you know, the dead of the politicians who made the decisions that they made and the dead of those who have suffered in con conflicts as a consequence of those decisions. Um, so it's an important moment, I think, for us to, not just to remember history, but to, to look at what we think we mean when we say history, you know, even the, you know, the contested nature of the anniversary itself. Is it is it partition? Is it, you know, the beginning of something we might call Northern Ireland, whatever that is? I mean, these are these are kind of differences and difficulties that are worth looking at anew. And I hope that this book in its complexity is 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 in a sense part of that um conversation. Is there another poem that you'd like to wrap up with? Okay, I'll read, I'll read Worm and then we can see if this fits in. And if it doesn't, not to worry, it doesn't matter. 
worm. Burrowing in your allotted patch, you move through the dark, muscles contracting one by one in every part, lengthening and shortening the slick, segmented tube of you, furrows in your wake. Devising passages for water, air, you plot the gaps that keep the structure from collapse. Dead things you know, plants and creatures both. Your grooves shift matter, sifting as you go. Eyeless, your appetite erates, eating the world, you open it. You ingest to differentiate. Under the foot-stamped earth, you eat into a clot of leaf mould, clay and mildew and express what you can part with, as self-possessed as when you started. Your secretions bind the soil, your shit enriches it. How things lie now will be undone, will reoccur. You, a surface-level archivist, sensing all there is can be gone through, the body born within its plot. Gail McConnell, you bring uh, wonder into the most beautiful and burdensome things um, and your poetry brings wonder, the wonder of looking at archival material and the wonder at looking at history and the wonder at looking at creepy crawlies and many other things that you find in the dark and bringing those into the light. Thank you so much for your time and your your extraordinary work and the the gift of the work that you give to so many. Well, thank you, Podrick, for the attention that you've given to my poems and to your um, insights about them. I'm heartened by what you see in there. I hope you're right. <laughs> and thanks so much for having me. This has been a real, a real pleasure. My pleasure. Our guest this week, Dr. Gail McConnell, is a lecturer in poetry at Queen's University in Belfast. Her poetry collection, The Sun is Open, comes out in the autumn time of this year, published by Penned in the Margins. Don't forget to listen right to the end for when Gail answers some of our very short story questions. Thanks for listening to the Corrymeela podcast. I'm Padraig Otuma, and I'll be back next week with another episode. The Corrymeela podcast comes to you with generous support from our funders, the Henry Luce Foundation, the Fund for Reconciliation from the Irish Government, and the Community Relations Council of Northern Ireland. The Corrymeela podcast is a Fan Fan production. Thanks to researcher and producer Emily Rawling. This podcast was mixed by Fra Sands at Safe Place Studios. In one or two sentences, Gail, I wonder if you could tell us about a time when your national identity felt important to you. It was trying as an Irish citizen to sponsor my son's Irish passport, but finding that I couldn't because I was not his biological parent. But finding also that my partner, who was born and lived into her early 20s in the US, could, as a new Irish citizen, sponsor his visa as his biological parent. So it was a bittersweet experience of, on the one hand, feeling excluded from something as an Irish citizen, because of biology, but on the other hand, seeing my partner have this warm welcome into Irishness and be able then to act as Finn's sponsor and as his parent. When was a time when you read or saw or heard something and thought, oh, reading this, I do belong, or that's me? <laughs> I've been thinking about this recently because we've been reading with Finn uh, 
Raymond Briggs's beautifully illustrated book, The Snowman, and watching the, the animation that, that goes along with it. And I have a little plastic snowman that I've kept. I think it was a bubble bath or something, but I've kept it all of these years from when I was a child that Finn has now adopted. And when I thought about this question, I, I, I thought about this and thought, what is it about the snowman that holds such meaning for me? And I think there is something about the experience of the little boy in that story who has this magical experience, you know, imagined or otherwise, with a snowman, which, you know, he's an only child. I was an only child for most, you know, the majority of my life. But he also has this profound and primary experience of loss. You know, the snowman melts at yeah. the end of the story and ends on quite a sad note in the sense where there's a moment in which the boy has to come to terms with the loss that follows this joyous experience. And I think that's a story that, yeah, resonates for me. And finally, Gail, are there friendships that you have that you know break the mold or expectation about friendships as you're expected to have? One of my closest friendships was with Kieran Carson, someone who was 32 years older than me. And Kieran, you know, he started out as a mentor of sorts and he remained a mentor, but over a few years of coffee and conversation about poetry and, and everything else, he also became a friend. And that friendship is one of the greatest and most unexpected gifts of my life. Um, he left the world that we're in now in the autumn of 2019, and I miss him dearly. Gail McConnell, thank you very much. Thank you, Patrick.